Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Jesus has large crowds following him. You'd think he'd want to make the large crowd larger, but instead he tells them that to be his followers, they need to hate their families, hate themselves, take up their cross, and count the cost. It's a unique sales strategy. Tell them the truth. The story of surrender is part five of Parabolic Mirrors. It's taught by lead teacher Randy Pope and covers Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Thank you for joining us today. We're in a series, and it's on the parables. It's called Parabolic Mirrors. It's interesting that the the teaching today is really not truthfully a parable, (laughs) but I'm, I'm slipping it in. Because it relates so well to the parable that I taught to introduce this series. If you were with us, we talked about the parable of the soils. We called it the story of legitimacy. And we answered the question, why is it that so few people want to embrace Christ as he calls us to be on the narrow road? And I read out of Matthew, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, where Jesus says there are two roads, there is the narrow and there is the broad. Very few are on the narrow. Hmm. Many, many, many are on the broad. And then he addresses the question in the first parable that I taught, the parable of the soils. Why are so few people on the narrow way? And we answer that because certainly as the first of four seeds... There's no interest in the narrow way. People maybe don't even believe that there is another way, or they think all ways are the same. They're not even intrigued with the way of Christ. Seed number one. Seed number two, oh, great interest in the narrow way, intrigued by it, interested in it, knowing I need it, in fact. But the problem shows itself in that When approaching the narrow way, the sight of the problems and the challenges and the hardships are so real. I don't think I want to get on that narrow way. It looks a little restrictive to me. I don't know. It's enticing, but I don't know. Third seed. Oh, I'm enticed by the narrow way. It's the best way. I know it's the way. It's the right way. But, oh, my goodness, look how much pleasure there is to be found on the broad way. I don't think I want to give up the broad way. And so we talk about that seed number two and number three and how many people have been wrongly assuming, oh, we must be Christians because at least we're enticed by the way. Well, Jesus is going to use particularly the parables at the end of his teaching ministry to talk about the characteristics and the conditions of the kingdom of God. He's teaching here about the kingdom, and we're going to be in chapter 14 of Luke. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. Luke chapter 14. We're going to be beginning in verse 25 in just a moment. Now we're going to be addressing a second question, not why so few people wanting to enter the narrow way, but the better question now is this. How is it that someone can get in the narrow way? Or put it this way, what are the requirements to enter into the narrow way? What really are they? Our text will address what it means to be a disciple. The word disciple is going to be used. Let me make sure we understand this. Disciple 
the way it's used in the modern church today so often is used to refer to someone who is a very, very strong, faithful Christian. It's not inappropriate to call that person a disciple. But we've been way too restrictive if we think that's what it means. The disciple is literally follower. It's used in Scripture most always to be synonymous to a real Christian. A Christian is a follower. A follower will follow Jesus. I like to put it like this. Put a picture up here. Here we've got you and me over here, and we've got Jesus over here. Well, what does a follower do? A follower moves toward Jesus. Uh, is it the straight line without error? No. There is there's a move down, a move up, a move away from and away from, but, but we're moving in the right direction. As opposed to here, we would have you and me right here, Jesus over here, but we're moving in opposite direction. The real believer is moving in this direction. And so we have a teaching now to say, what does it mean to be a follower moving in that direction? We're getting very, very specific. I was having lunch yesterday. Carol's out of town for a few days, and so I was having lunch with uh, my, uh, one of my sons and his family. And uh, as we were eating, we were talking random things, and somehow it came up about Talk, uh, talking about the series or whatever. And I said, yeah, I'm going to be uh, teaching this weekend a, a text that I don't think a lot of people are going to enjoy. You know, I'm glad that people don't come to Perimeter so they can enjoy uh, because, you know, that, that's not what we do here. We, we try to, hopefully it's enjoyable, but, but that's not the goal. The goal is to, is to faithfully take the teaching of God. And I said, we happen to come to a text now that's, I just don't, I really don't like a whole lot at first what I hear Jesus saying. In fact, it's a bit confusing. You're going to be confused. I will promise you, you'll be confused by my teaching and by what Jesus has to say. That's my job to clarify it before it's all over. You're going to hear something that is not true. You're going to hear saying that, oh, man, I must not be a Christian because I don't. I must not be a Christian. No, no, no. It never is the goal to shake anybody's firm foundation of assurance. No. But there is a story here that Jesus is telling that is so critically important. It grieves me that the church has not really understood it. So I told him, I said, I don't think a lot of people are going to enjoy this message. But there's something we all have to know. Please know this. News is not good news unless it's truthful news. A lot of people today say news is good news if it makes me feel good. News is good news if it makes me feel better about whatever. If the doctors had come to Beth's family days before her death and said, got good news for you. She's going to be well within a couple of days. No problem. This cancer is going to go away. I just tell you right now, I'm the doctor and I know and it's going away. Well, is that good news? If it's not truthful news, no, it's not good news. It's setting them up for something that's going to be devastating, more so now. The same is true with the gospel. There's a church that is very popular, very, very well-known church. 
And the pastor of this particular church uh, will say so. I give only the good news. I always kind of cringe right here, the good news. I only give the good news. And, and this particular teaching is going to be constantly, you know, God loves you and this and that and other and you can this and this and that. But you never hear about sin. You never hear about the problem and, the, you know, what it costs to follow Jesus, none of that stuff. And so I have a friend who happened to be in the city of this church, and just because of its familiarity and being so popular, said, I'm going to go to that church. I was in the bathroom right after the service and was listening to two men talk about their beloved church and pastor. That you know what I love about our pastor? He doesn't give both sides of the story. He just gives us the good news. And he tells us how good we are, and he tells us how loved we are, and he doesn't get into all that sin stuff. You know, I just think that's so good. That's why everybody loves this place so much. And the other guy says, I agree with you full-hearted. And my friend was just grieving as he listened to this conversation saying, no, in my words, no, it is not good news unless it is truthful news. And so if we hear Jesus saying, which he does, come, follow me, I receive you, but never hears if you follow, if you surrender, then you've really not heard the truthful news. This is a text among many other texts this is one that's going to focus in on if you. It's not so much the come, the good. It's if you. It's part of the good news, but it all goes together, okay? Now, if you have your outline, I'm going to invite you to look at that with me. The outline is going to kind of tell the story of where we're going. I want us to look at first the setting that's found in the first verse, verse 25. I want us just to read the very first verse. Let me kind of intro it into the text. Verse 25 says, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. Here's the point. Early in his ministry, crowds just gathering all around him. Oh, man. Why? Because Messiah has come. You know what Messiah means? It means, it means deliverer. You know the history of the Jewish people. They were under the domination of the Roman Empire. Romans were ruthless to these Jewish people. And so they were so excited about Messiah, Deliverer, coming. And here comes a Jewish man who performs miracles. So early in the ministry of Jesus, it is amazing. The crowds that are all gathering to hear him. And I mean, you can just picture him walking down the road and the mobs crowded behind him and the one in the front of the group saying, Give me a J! Jay, and everybody screams, give me an E, e you know, and, and, and he in essence turns to them and says, hey guys, I think you got it wrong. He ends up having basically a discussion with the people and it goes something like this in the vernacular. Now, Jesus, when are you going to deliver us? Like the Romans, when do we get rid of them? When are you going to do it? Oh, Romans? Oh, I'm not, I'm not delivering you from the Romans. What? I thought you were Messiah. Oh, I am. I thought you were Deliverer. Oh, I am. But you see, what you don't understand is I'm not going to deliver you from the Romans. They're going to continue. What I am going to do is I'm going to deliver you from your sin. That's how I'm Messiah. 
How many people today are hearing the story, come, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. He's the deliverer. Oh, he'll deliver you from hell. He'll deliver you from your pain and your struggles and your heartaches. And He's the great deliverer. You come, come, come and get it. And Jesus turns in this text and he says, hold on. I don't think you understand what I mean. In fact, in order to be my follower, you need to know that I'm not here. I may not deliver you from your cancer. I can, and I'm often, from time to time, I will do that. And I'll heal your marriage from time to time. But you know what? I didn't come. I didn't come to promise everybody a good marriage, to promise everybody healthy bodies. I'm not doing that. That's coming when the kingdom is finalized. Right now, I'm here to deliver you from your sin. And how many people say, huh, well, if that's all it is, I don't want any part of it. I thought he was going to, I thought he was, no. He's here to deliver us from our sin. So he gives a teaching here that's pretty straight on, pretty challenging. So here is the outline. It begins with number one, the requirements for being a follower are extremely severe. And we want to look at those requirements and how severe they are. Let me give you a quote by John Stott. John Stott, one of the great commentators of all time, says, Christ never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He just didn't do that. And so, verse 26, or let me give you the first point, it requires a reprioritizing of relationships. Now, there are three times in the text, this is the first we're going to see, that he's going to say, that you cannot be referring to his disciple. He says, unless so-and-so, you cannot be my disciple. Unless so-and-so, you cannot be my disciple. Unless so-and-so, you cannot be my disciple. Three times. And here's the first one. He's talking about relationships. He says, by the way, you've got to have me in front or more important than anybody. Verse 26 reads like this. If anyone comes to me does not hate this is interesting, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hmm. Do you think he really meant that? Well, let's make sure we know what he's saying. The word hate there happens to be an oriental idiom, idiom of, of contrast. It's really saying love less than. You've got to love every other person less than you love me. It's just a word of contrast. You see, Jesus knew the, uh, the competition to loyalty, that there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing more powerful than a strong love relationship. Some of you older people here, I bet you remember the story years ago of Susan Smith. Big headline story. This lady had, uh, I think, a couple of kids and she had a boyfriend. Apparently, the boyfriend was saying, I don't know how far I want to go with a relationship. I love you. I care for you. But, you know, the responsibility of the children and all that, I don't know. And so she says, well, I can take care of that. And she kills her two kids. Or three or whatever. I forget how many kids. But she kills her children for the sake of a love relationship. How powerful. Many of you have been through membership class. Some of you will go through it this afternoon with me. You hear the story. I'll tell the story of my father, a great love relationship that I had with him. I had a brother, good family. He had a 
dental practice that was booming. He had a beautiful home. He had everything you could want. He left everything. He met another woman. Left his wife, left his children, left everything. Why? He fell in love. The power of a love relationship. Amazing. Some of you know what it is to, to have given up, maybe at a time in your life, the faith that you held so dearly because of somebody you loved and you knew it would get in the way. And there are many of you here, I know many of you, who've had such a strong love relationship with Jesus that you've walked away from relationships that you love so much, but you knew they weren't right. You longed for them, but you loved your Jesus more than you loved those relationships. See, Jesus just knew the power of love relationships. And all he's saying is this. You have to put me in front of all other relationships. Oh, yes, love your parents. Yes, love your children. But let me tell you, you have to love me more. And immediately some of us are saying, uh, ooh, do I love him? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Maybe I'm not. Uh, don't go there. I'm going to explain it as we close. But he does say it, and he does mean it. You must love him more than any other. Singles, young people, if you knew that God was saying to you, don't spend time with that person, don't marry that person, would you say, okay? Or would you say, I'm sorry, Jesus. I think, I, I think I'm too in love to do that. Marrieds, any of you find yourself wanting to compromise your faith because of the, you know, maybe the fear of rocking the marital boat a little bit if you become too strong with Jesus? Well, he says, unless you cannot be. Wow, pretty heavy, isn't it? Now hold on, because I've got to explain it. I'm first just telling you what he's saying. Let's make sure we understand that first. So number two of your outline, it requires a reprioritizing of one's ambitions. Christ out front of ego or self. Never is there a following without a previous forsaking. We should know that. I mean, if you look at Simon and Andrew, they left their nets. James and John, they left their father. You look at, you look at uh, Matthew, and he left his tax business. Now, there's often a, a whatever, well, anytime there's a, a following, there's going to be some forsaking. And there's nothing, I think, more difficult to forsake than our own self. And he's going to teach us we have to deny ourself. I want you to look at Luke 9 with me here. Luke 9, verse 23 it says, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I'm going to read the rest of the text. You can read on, but it's, it's the same teaching there. But basically, if anyone wants to come after me, be my disciple, be a Christian, he must deny himself, take up his cross. H.B. Sweet talks about taking up the cross. He says, it's putting oneself in the position of a condemned man on his way to execution. Folks, this is not denying, uh, it's not denying yourself of things. It's denying yourself 
of yourself. What it actually means is that we are willing to lose our life, as this same text would go on to say. I have to lose some of my dreams. Okay. I have to lose some of my ambitions. Well, maybe. Now, I may have to lose some of my money. Okay. I have to lose some of my time. Okay. He says, if you want to be my follower, man, you got to forsake, you got to forsake others in relationship to me. And you've got to forsake yourself in relationship to me. And then thirdly, you can guess what it would be. He's going to mention our possessions. It's a reprioritizing of one's possessions. Christ out in front of everything. Look at verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, I want to ask you all a question. Honest, 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 okay? Does it appear to you, does it just appear that he is saying that none of us, none, not any of us, can be his disciple, a real Christian, his follower, who does not give up everything that we possess? Does it not look like that's what he's saying? You know why? Because that's exactly what he's saying. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I wonder what he meant by that. I bet he means that we cannot, I mean, you can just keep going over and over and over. It's, it, it says the same thing, right? Now, we need to know this. He doesn't mean that we have to give it up to the church, that we have to give it up to other people, that we have to take all of our possessions and have none that we even touch or steward. No. But he's saying you got to give it up to God, meaning this, I have to be more important than your possessions. You can't put your possessions, you can't, get, you can't make your love of life to gain things and to acquire more instead of going after me. Now you can't be my disciple. That wouldn't be. Oh, that's kind of confusing, isn't it? Because I bet many of us just hearing this much would say, I don't know how any of us qualify to be a, a real follower. Well, I want us to keep in mind, you remember what I said, following is moving toward Jesus. It's not in the straight line without error. I may move over here and see other people and start loving, oh, oh, i got to correct, I've got to get back. And I might go over here and I'm just falling in love with myself so much, I just want to do what I want to do. Oh, God, I'm, I'm not right there. Oh, the possession's over here. And I'm just moving along, but I'm moving toward Jesus because my heart is saying that's what's most important to me. If I had to make it simple, I would say it this way. It's like marriage. It's like your own marriage if you are married or you that will be married. When you go into the marriage contract, how does that work? Is there not an agreement that you're saying to the other person, I am placing you in front of every other person that I could spend time with, and I am going to pursue you more than any friendship, more than any other person, I'm going to pursue you. Yes. Does it not mean that, hey, when we get married, I promise to be faithful to you 
and to protect you. If I'm the husband, you're the bride, I'm going to protect you. That I'm going to provide, that I'm going to, that your will and your needs are going to have to take priority even over my own, that I'm going to die to me to marry you. Yes. Does it not mean that, that you're saying, you know, career is not as important to me as my marriage? Nothing is important. I'm going to live with you and be a partner with you? Yes, you're saying that. Does any person hear their spouse say that, knowing that we are broken, frail people, and say, and I know you're going to do it to perfection? No. We know different. But if we heard this person being honest to the heart, saying, I have to say this, honey, I want to marry you, and I'm looking forward to our marriage, but I have to say, I just have to say that I can't tell you that I'm pursuing a relationship with you more than I am any other person. And I can't tell you that I'm going to place you, that my intention is to put you instead of me as my priority. I love me, and I want to take care of me, and with whatever's left over, I want to take care of you. And by the way, I love my golf, and I'm sorry, but golf has got to take priority over our time together. <laughs> it's just got to. I am so sorry, but I love it. That woman would be saying, uh-uh, no way, no way, no way. But a true relationship would say, oh, honey, I want you. And you know more than any other person, will I be attracted to anybody else? Yes, and I regret that I will be, and you know I will be. But let me tell you, that's not my intention. And, and will I find myself selfish, kind of wanting to do what I want? Oh, Carol, get ready because I'm a selfish person. Get ready, but I'm telling you what, my intention of all intentions is to die to me to be the best husband you'll ever know. And I'll tell you this, possessions, do I like things? Would I like? Yes, but I'm telling you this, uh-uh, those are not my priority. My priority is I want you to be my spouse. And hearing that, she'd say, you come after me. Come, let's get married. Let's unite. Yes. But she'd say to anybody and any woman, any man would say to the other spouse, the other person entering into the spousal relationship, they'd say, look, if it's not your intention, your heart, your plan, your thought, your desire to have me as in front of everyone else, everything else, and even yourself, then let's not even go there. That's what Jesus is saying. He raises the bar so much higher than the church today is allowing it to be set. There's no follow-up if you follow, if you surrender, if you put Christ out front. And we're doing a great disservice. Why? Look at the last, and we close with this. It's very short. The second point, two reasons. The reasons for such severity, twofold. And let me read verses 28 through 33, and it says it pretty clearly. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Why? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for ter terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple, does not give up all of his possessions." And basically what he's saying is this, first of two reasons, for the sake of those who are considering following. Any of you here that are seekers, you're seeking to understand the faith, 
You need to, I mean, you need to count the cost. Jesus is fair enough rather than kind of trick you and say, come on, follow me. You like this. And then get you on the way and say, oh, by the way, I got to have this. I got to have that. And whoa, 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 what am I doing? Right up front, he says, I want you to know you have to count the cost. And he uses the analogy of building a building and fighting a war. Building and battle, isn't that interesting? Both very costly. And he says, I want you to count the cost before you ever say, I am willing to follow. Know what it means to follow, period. But there's a second reason, and the second reason is this. For the sake of Christ's mission, this is important. If you had a life or death mission, and certainly Jesus's was because it was about the souls that live or die forever. If you had a mission that was life or death, and you're leading that mission, you tell me this. Would you be very selective in who you ask to be a part of the team that's going to do that? Jesus had a mission to bring his kingdom to this earth. And he says it's going to be building a church and it's going to be in a battle that the gates of Hades will not even be able to prevail, but there's going to be battle to bring down those gates. It's going to be, it's going to be serious time. We're going to fight and we're going to construct and I'm going to build my bride, the church, and I would love to have any of you that would come. You come. But know this, it's to build and it's to battle. You see, Jesus is counting the cost. He's got a mission. He says, I want you all on the mission, but I want you to count the cost. You know, as I close... I know the question that we got to be asking. Do I love him enough? How much do I love him? How do I love him? I'm meeting with a group of men right now, helping them investigate the claims of Jesus. Some of them are just kind of brand new and others a little further along, but we've been talking about some of these things. And in doing it, I put it this way. I said, you know, it's, it's all about a love relationship. The question, well, how do you fall in love? You will not put Christ out front unless you love him. You remember the relationship that you had? Maybe your first love, and you were kind of goo-goo. You were like, oh, gosh, I just, just smell them, to be around them, to touch them. I don't, you know, just, oh, oh, oh. And now that love relationship's gone way in the past, and you laugh about it. Because now you're in love with your spouse. Or someone now you're dating that you care so much about, and you say, what was wrong with me? What happened? How did you give that up? Oh, you found someone you love more. How do you fall out of love with all the other relationships and yourself and things? I'll tell you how. You fall in love with Jesus. So your question, how do I fall in love with Jesus? Here's my answer. How did you fall in love with somebody you love right now? Didn't you find them to be lovable and you started spending enough time with them that you, you call it fall in love? Do you know it's the same way with Jesus? You fall in love with Jesus. How? And I say to these guys, look, you've got you to gotta spend time with him. Read about him in the scriptures. Talk to him in prayer. Listen about him through other teachers. 
Spend time, as much time as you can, with him and getting to know him. And if he's who he claims to be, if he's that lovable, you will fall in love. It will happen. I don't see people pursuing Jesus, going to the cross, staring at the work, trying to understand the work of the cross, who then don't fall in love. Many people won't spend time. But when you spend time with Jesus in a pursuit of knowing and loving him, you will fall more deeply in love. And I'll guarantee you, you'll find others not near as important as him. You will find your own self not near as important as his will. And possessions, oh my goodness, you'll laugh at the fact that you used to be so enamored with all those possessions. What was I thinking? Because now I'm in love. I found the greatest love of all. Pursue Christ. See the cross. See his love. Fall in love. You will follow as we pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would enable us to fall more deeply in love. We know there's responsibility in building love relationships. And with you, we want to be responsible. Drive us to the cross. Let us see the work of redemption. Let us see your word, your love, your teaching, the things that help us. God, grant us this week to fall more in love with you because we just spent time with you pursuing your heart. Grant it, we pray, and thank you for the privilege. We ask it all in the great name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.